Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favourite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. As you may know, on this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Forrest Gander, a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the winner of a Pulitzer Prize for his collection, Be With. Welcome, Forrest. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be with you, Kevin. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. So the first poem you selected to read is Privacy by Ada Limon. Can you tell us what it was about this particular poem that caught your eye as you were looking through the archives? Well, a lot of her poems have to do with the relationship between the human and the non-human world. And so that drew me to it at first. And then there was just so much resonance in it with other poems, with literary history, and with, I think, one of the major concerns about poetry itself, which is about the making of meaning. Let's listen to the poem. Here is Forrest Gander reading Privacy by Ada Limon. Privacy. On the black, wet branches of the linden, still clinging to umber leaves of late fall, to crow's land. They say, stop, and still I want to make them into something they are not. Odin's ravens, the Bruja's eyes, what news are they bringing of our world to the world of the gods? It can't be good. More suffering all around, more stinging nettles and toxic blades shoved into the scarred parts of us, the minor ones underneath the trees. Rain comes while I'm still standing, a trickle of water from whatever we believe is beyond the sky. The crows seem enormous, but only because I am watching them too closely. They do not care to be seen as symbols. A shake of a wing and both of them are gone. There was no message given, no message I was asked to give, only their great absence and my sad privacy, returning like the bracing empty wind on the black wet branches of the linden. That was Privacy by Ada Limon, which was published in the March 22nd, 2021 issue of the magazine. It was great to hear you read that, especially the echoes of the beginning and the end, the sort of circular nature of the poem. I heard it new again when you read it. Um, But you talked about the natural world, and I noticed hearing it how much the poem is resisting 
symbolizing them, but at the same time, it's sort of giving in to their symbol. I mean, these crows are so fraught in a way. How do you take that? I think that um, that the poet is wrestling with the instinct that humans have to assign meaning to everything. And I mean, that leads to anthropomorphism. And then our distrust of anthropomorphism leads to our separation from nature. So it's a very complex issue. And in some ways, this poem seems very much in conversation with Wallace Stevens' Snowman, because mm. as you point out, the first line and the last line are the same, but they're not the same because of what connects them. On the first line, on the black, wet branches of the linden, which also brings to mind petals on a wet black bough from Ezra Pound's and Station the Metro. Um, on the black wet branches of the linden it begins, still clinging to umber leaves are these two crows. But at the end, on the black wet branches of the linden, all there is is empty wind. So in mm -hmm. some ways, the structure of the poem has mimicked the disappearance of the crows. And you're left with just what is. And what is, I think, is interesting because she says at one point, the crows seem enormous, but only because I am watching them too closely. Um, so what do we do with that enormity? But also there's that title, which I think suggests something far beyond privacy. How do you take the title there? So I love that line too, the crows seem enormous. Because there again, she's looking for meaning. They're even bigger than how they really are. You know, they're bigger because she keeps wanting to make a symbol out of them. But she recognizes that's something that she's doing herself. And this is again sort of like Wallace Stevens, the emperor of ice cream. You know, let be be finale of seem. She wants to be left with what is and not mm. what seems. And so the enormity of the crows turns into just a pair of crows that disappear and mm -hmm. the, the beingness of this empty wind. It's curious, Kevin, there's actually a, a third poem we could bring into the discussion, which you'll probably resist, but <laughs> you, you have this poem called Egrets, also about birds, oh. from the new collection Stones, which begins by acknowledging that some people see the egret as a symbol. But, but <laughs> right. the speaker says, uh, believes the soul is neither air nor water, not this winged thing. And then it goes off in a complex way to handle the same tension between analogy and metaphor making and sure. what is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think birds inspire that in us in a weird way. We, we see them and we see a distant relative or, or some yearning. And in the case of the crow, I also was thinking of Ted Hughes and Ted Hughes's crow and the sort of fury of that book, which is so filled with grief, but made metaphor. But here it takes a different tack, but I, I love that the poet is aware that they do not care to be seen as symbols, which is different than they don't want to be. They kind of dislike it, but they also don't have a care in the world uh, about this issue. Yeah. And there's a part of that that speaks to me too, where it says blades shoved into the scarred parts of us, the minor ones underneath the trees. And hearing you read it, I heard it again, because there's this lovely play or tension between 
us being the minor ones and then the scarred parts being these minor ones. I wonder how you read that that line. I was going to I was wondering how you were going to talk about that line <laughs> because it seems to me it's the central line of the poem. Agreed. And that it has to do with this humility of the human mm. um mm. that we are minor here on the earth though we take ourselves to be the major players. That was sort of my reading and sort of a really surprising one when i read toxic blades shoved into the scarred parts i'm thinking of the earth i'm thinking of bulldozers mm. um so that minor ones being the descriptive of us was a complete surprise for me a radical sure. moment in the poem well i think the breaks which i think in in a free verse poem carry so much weight they are the music they're the indications as my old teacher denise levertov used to say you know they're the score that the reader conducts you know and i think just looking at these really strong breaks in enjambment what news break more suffering break rain they do not a shake of a wing there was no message break given and and that kind of turning and 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 reconsidering and the throwing over of the line the throwing of the, over of the leg the literal enjambment uh i think is really powerful and contributes to that uh sense of surprise that you're talking about me too and i love in that the section that you're talking about the sudden appearance of these long o sounds that also seem to play out a deeper emotion this this linguist that i whose work i like a lot ruven sur talks about uh, how sounds have always made meaning before semantic meaning comes and that we're feeling a meaning before we even understand the meaning and that long o's and long u sounds are often connected in many languages with deeper emotions so we mm. get this um one come crow closely both no no only very <laughs> resonant which working with that line break that you point out they're both remaking meanings yeah well said also the you talked about the um the ted hughes crow but that beginning also reminds me of a beautiful lorca poem that casita of the dark doves through the branches of the laurel i saw two dark doves these are some of the ways the poem seems to be in conversation with other poems sure. for me sure well and i i think the poem is is in conversation with so much because it also is interested in myth but also dispelling myth uh, and also interested in the way we make myth, um, but also unmaking it. Odin's ravens, the Bruja's eyes, what news? You know, and, and I, I think that that combination is really poignant in the poem. Um, it also feels like there's this weight that the poem is, is both endured, it's witnessed, the, my sad privacy, which is sort of all of ours, you know, by the end, I, I think. And I love that it turns to that. And, and I noticed you had you escaped a little bit saying, what do you think that privacy is? Yeah, getting back to that, because that's key. Robert Creeley has that line, am I to be locked into the spinal uneasiness? The uneasiness of, of being not a part of everything, but mm. apart from everything, that our privacy is us when we don't feel connected to the rest of the world. And so we look for 
ways of finding connection, but there's that tension between our privacy, our, our solitude, our singularity, and our connectedness. Well, and I think also there's two crows. You know, they are in some way united. You know, they're a pair. And, and so there's this kind of loneliness versus solitude. I mean, I dare say there's a bit of American feeling that solitude equals loneliness, but poets have long written about them as somehow different and that solitude could bring revelation or, or uh, a monkish catharsis, right? And, and here, it, I feel like it's negotiating that. It hasn't decided whether this privacy is sad as a matter of course or as sad as you put it, as feeling apart, uh, feeling alone. So that tension and that ambiguity, which you very keenly articulated, is, I think, the key to the poem and, and why it resonates, because it doesn't answer in any kind of final way. It wasn't until I read the poem a number of times that I realized that she uses the word still three times in the poem, mm -hmm. and that it's working both as an adjective and a noun, and sometimes has the implication of a verb. They say stop and still. And even though it's working there as an adverb, still I want, it's also giving us this, this other sense of stop and being still and being quiet, yeah. this sort of listening. And that recurs, I'm still standing. A trickle mm -hmm. of water from whatever we believe is beyond the sky as the rain, again, sort of reaching for meaning for symbol beyond the what is of the rain. I mean, I, and I, I think that the circularity too of the poem, the beginning and you know, it's like a ballad. I always used to say that a ballad, you know, and you put it so well, the lines aren't the same, right? Um, even though they're repeated and all that happens in between, you hear the ironies, you hear the emptiness. And as you said, it enacts. And I think all good poems enact and they don't just describe and there's a physicality to the poem that I really admire. Uh, it really moves around while thinking aloud, too. Um, and, and that poet thinking with us is a real gift, I think. And that's a characteristic of Ada's poems, too, that they do that kind of a visceral thinking, you might say. Well, I'd love to talk about your poem. In the April 12th, 2021 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Post-Fire Forest, which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about the poem first? Anything you want readers to know going in? Well, um, of course, when a reader normally goes into a poem, the reader doesn't have the context, <laughs> but maybe the context is interesting. This poem is part of a sequence of poems based on Sangam poetry, which was this tradition in southern India, Tamil Nadu, about 2,000 years ago, in which it was understood that you could not write about personal emotion without writing about the landscape around you, because the landscape is involved with your feelings. And it seems in many ways like a proto-eco-poetics. And again, a kind of humility that our feelings um, and our thoughts don't just come out of us, that they come out of a relationship and engagement that we're always in. So this is influenced by Sangam poetics. And also, I was spending time with a poet, I don't know if you know, Maya Kosla, who's also a biologist, 
and is working in post-fire forests because we're both live in California. And after uh, huge wildfires go through, the forest in service is so in bed with the timber industry that they quickly propose cutting down all of the forest in areas that were burned, including the trees, the good trees that are still there. And what that does is actually clear cutting increases the damage from future fires. And it also keeps the forest from recovering as it would. So she goes into the forest, the post-fire forests, looking for signs of life so that she can keep them from being clear cut. And in California, one of the first birds that returns to a burned forest is the black-backed woodpecker. So we were we were searching for the black-backed woodpecker. All right. Here's Forrest Grander reading his poem, Post-Fire Forest. Post-Fire Forest. Shadows of shadows without canopy. Phalanxes of carbonized trunks and snags their inner momentum shorted out. They surround us in early morning like plutonic pillars, like mute clairvoyance leading a sursum corda, like the excrescence of some long slaughter. All that moves is mist lifting, too indistinct to be called ghostly, from scorched filamental layers of rain-moistened earth. What remains of the forest takes place in the exclamatory mode, cindered utterances in a tongue from which everything trivial has been volatilized, everything trivial to fire, in a notch between near hills stumbled with black paroxysm, we spot a familiar sun, liquid glass globed at the blowpipe's tip. If this landscape is dreaming, it must dream itself awake. You have, everyone notes, a rare talent for happiness. I wonder how to value that walking through wreckage. On the second day, a black-backed woodpecker answers your call. But we search until twilight without finding it. That was Post-Fire Forest by Forrest Gander. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. 
Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. I was struck hearing you read it about the shifting we, you, and I in the poem. Because the beginning, if I hadn't known the specifics of it, I, I think of the we very broadly. I think of it as sort of us in this post-apocalyptic world. Perhaps it's when the poem ran, we were in, still in the midst of pandemic, that it felt like also a poem about survival, a poem about us. And if this landscape is dreaming, it must dream itself awake. Seems to me a larger calling to consciousness you know, dreams as distinct from reality, but also this kind of nightmare landscape that you're describing. How do you see that we, uh, and do you think of it too as, as rippling out beyond, say, the people who are there? Um, I'm glad you noticed that, Kevin, which <laughs> I can expect from your kinds of readings. I did want to be talking in a more universal way in the beginning, and then I felt a need to make it more intimate, um, mm -hmm. and to focus in on that you that's also so present once again in, in Robert Creeley's poems in For Love, to have a very particular you. And mm -hmm. also because this experience when I was walking through this burned forest, I was walking with a person who has become my partner, and I was... Um, I was walking through this incredible wreckage of forest, but also there was this tremendous wreckage inside me of having uh, lost my wife, the uh, incredible poet C.D. Wright. Um, and then I was met this person who was um, had this natural happiness, and I didn't even know what to do with it. And so I wanted to bring that intimacy into the poem as well. Well, there is a, you know, this walking, a poet is a walk, a poem is a walk, but there is this moment, I, I, I felt the echoes of that. And as you know, we've known each other a long time and knowing CD, uh, I found it very moving here. I wonder how to value that walking through wreckage, but it echoes and ripples out in such a powerful way, I think, because it is about the landscape in a way that you're, you're talking about. Um, how do you go about that as a poet? I mean, how do you reach for the big stuff and then get that intimacy still? Well, that's part of what I admire about these Sangam poems is that I do think that our feeling is connected to what's around us and that drawing those connections is an important a priori towards addressing this catastrophic environmental situation that we're in now, where many scientists are saying it's already too late. We're not going to recover the oceans. Um, they're going to acidify and, and the fish are going to die off. And, you know, in the New York Times this morning, the number of species that are disappearing so rapidly, but that's directly connected to us. And until we have a feeling for our mutuality, I think we're doomed. Hmm. But how come when I read the poem, I don't feel doomed? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> how come, you know, how come when I read it, there is this rare talent for happiness, which may be ironic, but it, it, it speaks to a kind of, is it resilience? And, and, you know, my sense of fires is, you know, they, they too 
resist a symbol a little like we were talking with Ada's poem, but they also have the symbolic quality uh, of rebirth of the Phoenix of what's next. How do you uh, account for that? I think in some ways it's a little bit like the ending of Ada's poem also that I don't want to clear up the problem, but I do have a hopefulness about it. I see a bracing quality to the encounter with the possibility of happiness inside the wreckage. I think that verb, I wonder, we sometimes underestimate that, you know, and, and this wondering which has both, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, but also I, I wonder, I, I have this sense of possibility uh, is really powerful to me. Yeah, there's this thing that Lao Tzu says. He says, those who are not in constant awe, surely some great tragedy will befall them. Wow, really? That's cold. <laughs> keep going, keep going, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it, you know, that's wonder. We, we need to... We need yeah. to have that sense. That's what gives humans hopefulness. Um, How aware were you, I must ask, about the title and its sort of pun on your name? Were you thinking about that? You know, since um, the Run, Forest, Run movie, um, I haven't been able to go anywhere without my name being connected to something else, um, <laughs> either that movie or the pun with, uh, with Forest. But I kind of just want to blow through that because uh, although I'm, you know, when I say forest, I'm aware that my name is forest also, but I'm really interested in forests. You know, I grew up (laughs) in Virginia with just a a single mother who was a school teacher and working all the time. So I spent my time in the forest as a, as a child. And you've also had lots of rural experiences where your family is from. That's right, Louisiana. And, you know, we moved around a lot and there's usually woods of some kind, which do feel harder to find, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes think that if everybody lived in a, even a small house that had just a small plot of land, what Henry Dumas called a truck patch farm, uh, just your, <laughs> your, your sort of truck patch vegetable growing, that if, if all of us just had a little piece of land that we were invested in that we would have a different relationship with the earth than we do. Well, I wonder about that in terms of pandemic, because I was in cities during then. I'm still in a city, but outdoor space has become such a premium. Uh, I certainly started growing plants and, and feeling like there was something about that connectedness that kept me connected to myself. Um, I wonder about that and and how you see that shaping either your poetry, uh, I mean, pandemic, or the poetry you see and encounter and, and are, you know, writing or reading? How do you talk about this moment? Um, you've probably read about forest bathing, this Japanese concept of going into the forest um, simply to overcome your depression, to feel better. And it's connected to something I, I also write about in, in Twice Alive, which is terpenes, that the, the plants, um, the redwoods, um, are giving off chemicals that actually do make us feel better. It's a, it's a chemical thing. And that in some ways people resist this kind of talk because we are such a city-fied culture and the idea that everyone should have access to 
uh, something outside of the city to some piece of nature can sound like the advocacy of a kind of privilege. But I think it's a human privilege that we need to create for everyone, that we engage in a world beyond the one that we've built. Well, I, I love that. And I'm thinking a little bit about Frank O'Hara, uh, certainly a city poet who has the line uh, in meditations in an emergency, even trees understand me. Good heavens, I lie under them too, don't I? I'm just like a pile of leaves. You know, there's this, <laughs> he's, he's, he's making us think and laugh about this pastoral idea. But you're, you're trying to get us past a pastoral, I feel like. And, and even that notion isn't like the country uh, looked at from the city. It's really about the human looking at nature and nature looking back. I, that's how I read the poem. No, and that's an important distinction between what I think has come to be called eco-poetry and the sort of nature poetry, traditional nature poetry of the past. And the recognition that even our bodies themselves are made up of um, the DNA of parasites long ago became incorporated in our DNA. So as a species, we're not even pure. And under your armpits and my, you know, back to my knees, there's just billions of other creatures living. And that's why when I lived in Arkansas and was exposed to uh, literature from the Ku Klux Klan, it's all about the notion of purity and pure blood. And there is no such thing. It's a complete horrifically botched uh, notion. Well, I wonder about aliveness. We're talking about the human um, rebirth a bit. Is that what your new collection, Twice Alive, is, is thinking about? Well, tell us about it. Well, I'm thinking, one, I got to work with a, an incredible mycologist named Ann Pringle, and I became very interested in lichen, even though I'd spent a lot of my time in the woods and could identify lots of trees and animals, I'd really never noticed the lichen or the fungi, the mushrooms around me, and they're so all around us, almost everywhere we are. I think lichen grows in 90% of the earth. And people don't really know even now exactly what it is because hmm. these two things come together, an algae and a fungi or a cyanobacteria come together and they give up some of the properties that they had to become something different, something collaborative, and they can't ever go back to what they were. So they take on a second life and that made me think very much. I'm very interested in human intimacy, but about how that also happens with, with humans, that in a great love, you come together and you're transformed, that that collaboration is transformative. And so I was thinking about human intimacy and the intimacy that creates a lichen. And again, the relationship between us and what's not us. It sounds like poetry as well. Um, <laughs> these things that come together that we might not expect. I mean, these metaphors, these, these moments, these lines. Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, back to your, you're talking about wonder. Um, St. John of the Cross writes, I enter into unknowing, and I remain there without knowing, rising above all science. A kind of version of Keats's 
a negative capability to allow ourselves into a space of wonder and unknowing in a time now, you know, our epic is so full of spectacle and so full of argumentation. And the only kind of language that a lot of people live in is very logocentric, very rational, very um, uh, transactional. And that mm. poetry has always offered another way of knowing self and world. And I think every culture ever studied has had some form of poetry, often connected with shamanism and healing. But the possibility of the word opening up vision and expanding human consciousness. Well said. I don't think I can put it better than that. Forrest, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks a lot, Kevin. It's cool to be with you. Post Fire Forest by Forrest Gander, as well as Ada Limon's Privacy, can be found on newyorker.com. Ada Limon will publish a new collection, The Hurting Kind, in 2022. Forrest Gander's latest book is Twice Alive. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>